Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, the state of Cobb County, especially now that there could be, soon, Four, potentially four new cities. We'll talk about that as well as economic inequality, COVID-19, and education with Commission Chairwoman Lisa Cupid. Plus, a program expanding into DeKalb County looks to help families living in extended stay motels to find stable rental housing. And in a few moments, we reflect on 75 years ago this day when Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color barrier. All those conversations coming up. But first this, you might have noticed an increase in eggs at the store. Well, part of that could be due to there is a strain of bird flu. Now, Georgia officials are working to protect the state's massive chicken industry from from that new strain of bird flu. The virus is typically found in wild waterfowl, but it's deadly to chickens and can quickly spread between flocks, as we hear from Jess Mador. In the last few months, the flu has infected commercial chicken and turkey flocks in at least 26 other states. According to the Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the bird flu poses low risk to the public. Still, Georgia epidemiologist Sherry Drenzik says it's critical to prepare just in case. As we see with many, many other viruses, likely SARS-CoV-2 as well, the origin is often an animal species and we get crossover into humans. So any animal flu virus that develops that ability to infect people can evolve and spread and result in a pandemic. Georgia is the top producer of poultry and broilers in the U.S. The industry accounts for nearly half of the state's overall agriculture business. Jess Mador, WABE News. Speaking of eggs, this Sunday's Easter. Houses of Worship offering Easter services this weekend will probably see an increase in attendance. That's due to the pandemic. We know that numbers had drastically dropped, but began to come back as vaccinations became available and COVID-19 protocols loosened. Now, AME churches here in Georgia will still take temperature checks this Easter Sunday. And as part of other precautions and a statement to closer look from presiding Bishop Reginald T. Jackson, he says masks must be worn during service. A new report says Atlanta-based Southern Company is actively working against public policy to address climate change, despite the company's own announced clean energy goal, as we hear from Emily Jones. The analysis by Influence Map looks at public statements and behind-the-scenes action on climate policy, like letters to lawmakers and testimony about legislation. It says Southern Company has worked to slow the transition to clean energy. One example, the company's support of Georgia's law preventing cities from banning gas appliances in new buildings. Report co-author Kendra Haven says utilities like Southern Company can have a huge influence on laws. We've seen cases where utilities are engaging over and over in the development of a bill until they get what they proposed, (laughs) which is maybe a weakened version of that bill. Southern Company responded to the report by touting its goal of net zero emissions by 2050, something the analysis doesn't include because it's focused on public policy. Southern subsidiary Georgia Power does plan to stop burning coal to make electricity, but currently plans to replace some of it with gas, which still generates emissions that cause climate change. Emily Jones, WABE News. And finally, 75 years ago on this day, in front of 26,000-plus fans at Ebbets Field up in Brooklyn, New York, wearing 42 and playing second base for the Brooklyn Dodgers, Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color barrier. 
Born, as some of you may know, born in, and it's 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 Cairo, not Cairo, it's Cairo, Georgia. Robinson, he was 28 years old, I think, at the time. But at that time, it was right for America's favorite pastime to become integrated. Now, to characterize Robinson's legacy as monumental still doesn't just add up to what he did and what he went through. Joining me now to offer perspective on then and now, C.J. Stewart, Atlanta native, former Chicago Cubs outfielder. I still think I can beat him now because he you know, lost some of his speed. He's also a best-selling author, and he also is co-founder of Lead for Our Youth, and now the Lead Center for Youth. And I'm also joined by Emil Moffitt, who covers sports for WABE and is a former minor league play-by-play play, play by play broadcaster. Welcome to you both. Hey, Rose. Hey, it's great to be here. CJ, you and I have had this conversation before. You know, we've talked about, obviously, what Hank Aaron, our beloved Hank Aaron, meant to you and so many people here in Atlanta. But before, Hank also had his folks that meant so much to him, and, and Jackie Robinson was one of them. As you reflect on this day, 75 years when he integrated baseball, what do you think about? You know, um, so, you know, thinking about him being born in Georgia, uh, just like me, uh, and, you know, for me, I turned 46 um, last week and I just started thinking about, um, you know, even from the time that I started playing baseball, he inspired me. But, you know, have things gotten better? And, you know, I don't think that they have because I think so many people focus on the, the token side of Jackie Robinson, what, what people want to attach to. Um, versus, uh, you know, the fact that even when he passed, I mean, he was one of the most hated people uh, in this country because of the things that he was trying to do. So when I reflect um, 75 years and just think about um, the courage that it took for him to do what he did, but how people like myself have to keep things going to keep challenging the system so that um, things get better in this sport of baseball. And when you say token, you mean in terms of from other people, or do you think that Jackie was used as a token. I want you just to reflect a little bit, take that further for our listeners, so they clearly understand what you're saying. Yeah, thank you for um, for asking for clarity. Yeah, so I, I think for Jackie, I mean, it was very clear what his assignment was, having the opportunity to integrate baseball and to be able to show that um, African Americans um, can play this game. And and, and the thing about baseball, uh, so much like uh, life in general. Uh, it's not just based off of talent. Uh, there's a lot of critical thinking involved and a lot of patience, um, things that African-Americans were not um, perceived to have. So for him to do that, I mean, it, it proved a lot. But I believe that um, Major League Baseball, by by having him in that position, but not uh, even upon his, his death, I mean, he was fighting to get more black managers. So to have him to come in, but then not to allow African-Americans to move up the ladder to work in front office, owning teams and things like that. Uh, to me, quite frankly, it appears that he was used as a token. He was frustrated with it then, mm-hmm. and I'm frustrated with it now. Mill, as we reflect on 75 years uh, when Jackie Robinson integrated baseball, your thoughts? Well, you know, he wasn't coming out of the Negro Leagues. He wasn't the best ball player mm-hmm. um, that, that they could find. But Branch Rickey uh, picked him uh, to, to, to shoulder this, this burden of becoming the first black player in Major League Baseball because of how well he could handle the pressure and the mm-hmm. stress of it. And the first couple of years, uh, you know, there's the famous line that, that, that Branch Rickey told him was, you've got to turn the other cheek mm-hmm. and you've got to ignore the racist taunts from not only fans, but from other players and other managers, and and you can't fight back. And then he finally got the chance to fight back a few years into his career, and he really uh, was able to to speak his mind, and he really took on that that mantle of, of speaking out and, and fighting back. But just an incredible talent uh, that he was able to to have this great career was a great athlete, changed the game in many in many ways beyond just breaking the the, the color line. And just a remarkable a human being and a remarkable athlete to, to do what he did under the, the extreme pressure and stress that he faced. And we should know Branch Rickey signed uh, Jackie Robinson. Uh, Emil, I want to stay with you for a moment because you, besides being our wonderful WABE colleague and, and journalist, but you, as I mentioned, you were a former minor league play, uh, play-by-play play broadcaster. You saw a lot of folks 
coming up through the leagues, through the years you were doing that, did you see a lot of diversity in the front offices? We know about on the field, but do you agree with CJ that there's still something needs to be done about more representation in executive offices and also in the dugout in terms of managers? You might sometimes see coaches, but definitely managers and executives. Absolutely, and especially when you see so many times at the minor league and the major league level, you see the same managers and coaches just recycled. They move from one team to another. Whether or not they have success, Mm -hmm. they are automatically given that benefit of the doubt that, oh, you know how to do this, and they don't necessarily reflect what we were seeing as far as the diversity on the field. And you would see them more in coaches' roles than in managerial roles or being the general manager or the owner of the team. And I think to really develop young ball players and have a diverse set of young ball players, you have to have coaches and managers and general managers who can be their champions and who can be, um, you know, can foster that type of talent at every level. And and CJ, to your point, you've always said this too, you have to be able to have folks who, for some of the players, not all of them, but for a good majority of them, you understand the communities are, they're coming from. You understand maybe there might be some resources, or you just understand where they're coming from. You you know, you grew up right here. Off, you've always said, look, I grew up off Hollywood Road. I work with young kids from that area because you are from that community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's so important, important. And so even when I think about the structural racism um, that exists, you know, for me, racism before it's about people, it's about power. It's about influence, it's about affluence. And then it becomes about people when we're broken down into race, this, this man-made construct. And so when you start breaking people down by race, when you start looking at categories, picket education, sports, healthcare, uh, at the bottom is African-American women, and then next to her is an African-American man. So I think the thing that we have to deal with in this country is when we peel back what it, what it is to be Black, and then we start looking at what it is to be African-American. And I, because I believe African-Americans are perceived to be uh, dangerous, and, and, and when we are sometimes perceived at our best being silent and turning the other cheek is, is when we are most acceptable. Um, be, because of that, I believe it's the reason why our numbers are so low, not only in baseball and the front office, but in a lot of other industries as well. And, you know, when I saw recently and, and, and hats off to, uh, I believe her name is pronounced Alyssa uh, Nason or Nason, who uh, is the first woman to be a, um, on-field coach mm-hmm. uh, she was she made that um happen with the san francisco giants and i think that is amazing for uh baseball mm-hmm. but right now we have two african-american managers in baseball and i know a lot of african-american men that would love to be a manager in baseball play the game work in front office if we don't have the right convicting conversation about this in 10 years we could very well have more white women as managers in major league baseball than african-american men and and that is great for baseball what what has what has happened with her but we're talking about jackie robinson on 75 years since him integrating baseball we have declining numbers um why and even Why, why do we have those declining numbers in terms of the players though cj why do you think that is so, so based on my personal experience, but also being on the ground here in Atlanta and working with thousands of boys, uh, along with my wife, uh, Kelly, who's our um, executive director. And again, my personal experience as well. To, to the baseball is, is perceived as a white sport for white boys and white men. And if, even if you don't hear that, you, you see it on television. So, what, what I struggle with and boys still struggle with today unless we educate them is if if I submit and play this sport, then I am then accepting uh, white culture. And, and then I have to deal with, OK, do I lose my African-American culture to then go be in this sport? And so is that an American when, thing, CJ? Because and Emil, you know this, too, because we know that in in Cuba 
and the Dominican Republic and other it's other Latin countries. But baseball is, and they send scouts down there that that are purposely working and looking for these young players. And and, and Emil, you know, and CJ, you know. They'll start trying to sign them at 16. And, now, they ain't supposed to. <laughs> and there have been some issues where some might have been 14, but that's another story. They signed some of these kids at 16 and 17. Now, granted, the conditions yeah, well, that some of these are coming out, these kids are coming out of, they have to sign to these minor league deals. Well, to that point, I mean, you know, one thing that, that needs to be understood, accepted, and never forgotten is that the, the Negro Leagues took baseball to Japan. The Negro Leagues took baseball to Latin America. And for all intents and purposes, when Jackie Robinson integrated in the major leagues, uh, helped save the major leagues. Uh, because during that time, the Negro Leagues was drawing crowds larger than some of the major league team crowds. So when you start bringing black people in over to the white major leagues, uh, from a financial standpoint, uh, that, was, that was a blessing for the major leagues. Um, but then also, too, it's one of those things, and this is me even being a, a former scout myself, is... You know, Latin players oftentimes receive the benefit of the doubt as in being hardworking um, and resilient. Um, and, and those are things that are very important that when you combine that with physical talent, mm-hmm. uh, then you can you can get skills. Well, I think you, you got to be pretty resilient to be black and, and living in low income here in this city of Atlanta, which recently has been being unaffordable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I want to make sure that African-American boys in the city of Atlanta are getting that same benefit of the doubt, not just for baseball playing on the field, but getting that benefit of the doubt so that they can then work in the front office. But then on top of that, being able to work uh, for, for Fortune 500 companies, there's a lot of opportunities that we are missing out on because we're not getting the benefit of the doubt, respect and trust. Emil, do you agree or you have a different perspective in terms of how American black American players are scouted as opposed to Latin and, and Hispanic players. Yeah, and you mentioned you know, Latin American players, and they there's this this culture where baseball is so pervasive in Latin America, and you can walk around any street corner and they're playing a pickup game of baseball, and and they may have one baseball, and they may have one bat, mm-hmm. and some of them may have gloves, some of them may not have gloves. Whatever they have to do to get a baseball game going, they're going to get that baseball game going. And here, the financial obstacles to be able to take part in baseball are so high that you have to have some sort of financial backing. And if you don't have that financial backing to get to a game to play select baseball, to play travel baseball, to get one-on-one coaching, to get uniforms, to get everything that you need to play the game around other people in in America, that bar is so high. Absolutely. For example, here in our region, travel baseball in Cobb County is huge. It's expensive, too, because I have you're, friends who have kids. You're not just going to find a pickup game on the corner, No, you're not. And yeah. so as we begin to wrap up, fellas, and, and, but Emil, I know that you spoke to um, you spoke to I mean, Ralph, Ralph Gar, I Ralph, believe. Yeah, Ralph Gar, great outfielder in the 70s, played alongside Hank Aaron. And and he was at, there's there's a, a baseball series, a college baseball series that focuses on HBCU teams, and the Braves have gotten behind it. Uh, Bill Lucas and Ralph Gar are are the two namesakes on mm-hmm. this on this baseball series of to course, try to Bill promote it. Bill Lucas was the first uh, very, uh, black general manager for the Braves. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And and so I asked uh, Ralph Gar about the numbers uh, th- that has dropped down to the single digits of, of uh, black players in baseball. And here's a little bit of what he said about why he thinks uh, those numbers are are low and where they're at right now. I don't want to say that. It'll... Baseball players the best athlete, but it takes a little more to play baseball than I think football and basketball. I think you big and strong and fast in football, you have a chance. Like tall and fairly agile and bad, but to hit a round ball with a round bat is not an easy thing to do. And then guys throwing anywhere from 95 to 100 and some miles an hour, it takes a heck of a person to sit in there and put that round bat on that ball and won't do so. It just, it, I'm, I'm, I'm. You know, you're not happy that the, that the percentage is down, but I'm happy that the opportunities are there. 
and you just got to get in there and earn it just like all the rest of them because everybody's competing for it. And it's not about black or white or blue or orange. It's about human beings and baseball, and that's a good thing. I mean, I want to, uh, as you wrap up, I want to get this question to you then because if what he says, if you if you go by what he says, look, also, skills. It's, you, you can't just, look, the first time somebody dunks, they'll never forget that. Mm-hmm. But learning how to be patient at the plate, CJ knows this, knowing how to hit a curve or a slider, you can't just get that in one outing. It takes practice. Practice means skill sets. Skill sets mean you have to be able to practice all the time at a young age, travel ball, all of that. And for a lot of, as we say, inner city kids or kids coming out of you know economically disadvantaged communities, they don't have that access. And that's why I think it's so important some of the programs that have been developed uh, by Major League Baseball. Is it enough? Probably not. Um, by Major League Baseball and other organizations that try to allow access for uh, African-American ball players, young ball players, to get those repetitions, to develop those skills to where, hey, they can get the hang of baseball, and then all of a sudden that opens up doors to them, and they can take advantage of some of these opportunities like Ralph Gar was talking about. Going back from when he was playing college baseball, he was struggling to get enough money to go to college. He finally got a scholarship. But the opportunities, as he said, are there. But developing that, kindling that spirit and that love of the game early on through the opportunity to play, I think, mm-hmm. is something that, that, that needs to be focused on. CJ, we got to get y'all a baseball field. How do we make it happen? Well, you know, ironically, there's a lot of baseball fields uh, in the in the city. And, uh, you know, but for us with Lee Center for Youth, that is something that we are wanting to build our complex um, so that we can have a safe space um, we currently have a facility in the West End, but as we build our dream facility, a safe space for African-American boys to know that they can come to us, they're gonna be protected, they'll learn how to participate, they'll learn how to practice, they'll learn how to play, and then ultimately learn how to perform so that they can um, become major league citizens on and off the field. But the one last thing that I want to just say, mm-hmm. even the level beyond the opportunity is there is bias in baseball. Until we acknowledge that, then the money that we're spending, the, the, the showcases that we'll have, they will not matter if scouts are afraid of African-American boys. And so we got to be honest about that. And if we get honest about that and, um, and deal with that and heal from that, then the numbers are going to uh, increase. It sounds like a conversation we need to continue to keep having. C.J. Stewart, Emil Moffitt, thank you all so much. You know, I, I, my old days in sports talk, I could do this for the whole hour, but I see my producer, Daniel, giving me the side eye. So uh, <laughs> um, on this day, 75 years ago, Jackie Robinson integrates baseball. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Question, will Cobb County gain new cities? Well, next month, voters will have the opportunity to vote for or against the cityhood movements that came out of the Georgia legislature this session, which were East Cobb, Vinings, and Lost Mountain. The proposal to make Mableton a city, again, still remains in the hands of Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. However, he is expected to sign that bill. Well, that's what they say. That will allow voters, again, to vote for or against the cityhood, that will be in a November referendum. Now, this is just one of the many topics we'll get to talk about as Cobb County Chairwoman uh, Lisa Cupid joins me now. We appreciate you taking this time on Good Friday. Thank you so much, Chairwoman. 
Thank you, and glad to be here. Um, so much to talk about, but let's start here. Uh, it may be a, not a fair question now, but now that these cityhood movements, three of them are at least going to head to the ballot for next month, what do you make of all that? Yeah, it's a, it's a loaded question. There's so much going on, and you know, we're doing our best at the county to make sure that our citizens know that this is actually going on. And that's what pulled us to get engaged. You know, we have four that are underway, as you shared, Mableton could be on the ballot in November. And it's one thing for proponents to desire a city, but this impacts a larger population. And we just wanna make sure that they're informed so that they can um, be in a better position to determine the outcome of their communities. When you say informed, what are you telling them? Yes, that this is actually on the ballot. It's interesting how many um, emails that we have been receiving from people asking, why is the county doing this to us? We just found out about the city. Am I zoned in this city? And we realized there were just so many unknowns that were out there that we could not be passive as a county and um, not make sure that citizens were aware that this was even going on. So you're just telling them that this is going on, but are you giving them information? And I know you have to be fair that you <laughs> are you telling them the potential fiscal impacts? I mean, how transparent? What are you, exactly are you all telling them? Definitely. Um, certainly we want them to know that this is going on, but we also want to educate our residents, not only those that are inside the city limits, but those beyond that this can have a fiscal impact to the county. And right now we're estimating that to be at about $41 million a year if all four were to be successful. How does that hurt the county overall? Well, overall Cobb County is still going to provide the level of service that our citizens expect but we have to find a way to be able to do that without those resources. And so right now, this is something that we are grappling with as we look at the feasibility studies and understanding the services that each city wants to provide to make sure that we can continue to provide great service as well. Now, let me ask you this, because there was some issue. Craig Chapman is the president of the East Cobb Cityhood Committee. He sent you a letter saying that Georgia law prohibits a county from using taxpayer funds to campaign against referendums. And I'm going to read a portion of it. It reads, quote, this letter is a demand for Cobb County, its employees and agents to immediately cease and desist its campaign against cityhood. As such, we demand the following immediately direct all Cobb County staff and agents to cease speaking to the public in an official capacity about the cityhood efforts. What's your response to that? And are y'all out there campaigning against the referendums? Yes, so our county manager responded to that in consultation with our um, county attorneys and we have not been advocating against cities and it's interesting for those who are proponents such as craig you know they insist that we are doing too much for those who are opposed or don't know what's going on they're asking us to do more which is why we chose very early on initially to not get involved and as we receive more questions to move into educating now to educate but you're not uh, telling people to vote no we are are you are are you doing that no no, ma'am we are not telling people to vote no and as i've shared many times my segue into public service has been by way of being a community advocate and so i understand the desire for people to want a sense of place i understand a desire for people to want to create a sense of ownership around what's happening in their communities. And for some, when I say that, they may perceive I'm in support. But also, you know, I was a community advocate before. I'm a chairwoman now. I am an advocate for Cobb County. And so will I speak about our services? Will I speak about how this will impact us? Certainly, because I still have to think about how this is going to impact how we operate. And I still have to be able to make decisions that impact, you know, 4,300 men and women that work for Cobb County and um, be able to speak to, again, how this decision is going to affect what they do day in and day out. Are you, (laughs) will you be impacted by the cityhood movement as a resident? Interestingly, initially I was. So my family, well, we moved to the city of Smyrna just last year. But while the city of Mableton was being considered, um, this is the third iteration since I've lived in in um, the South Cobb area for about 20 years that I've heard of a cityhood movement for Mableton. 
And I lived in unincorporated Cobb at the time, and I certainly would have been impacted by it. And so, um, you know, it's interesting to wear those different hats and just be able to have different perspectives now living in a city, but serving as a leader in an unincorporated area. If next month voters approve for these, at least these three cities here, how long will it take in terms of will some services automatically go to the city? What's this, I guess, trans is there a transition phase here into in a sense? Yes, there will be a transition phase. There would take some time, certainly, to even decide who would be leading those cities. And it's my understanding that those that propose the cities legislatively are unable to be on that initial city council. Mm -hmm. And so I anticipate those that will be on the ballot in May will have a vote in November for their leadership. And then still, once January 1 rolls around, there will be a lot of negotiation that will have to take place between that city and the county to understand what services the county will provide and what services the city will provide. And so you're saying, just to be clear, that if approved, the county overall is going to look at losing $41 million in revenue? This is associated with each of the four, excuse me, with all of the four. This is all the four, okay. Yes. So Mableton, which will be on the ballot, um, will not be considered until November, that has about an eight and a half million dollar impact. So you're looking at about a thirty two million dollars. Is that through through taxes, permits, zoning, ordinances? What what this is thanks for asking. This is the revenue that is generated through our general fund and through our fire fund, hotel motel taxes that would go um, to the city should they be formed. You all, of course, like everybody around the world, we're all still dealing with COVID. But your numbers have decreased like a, a lot of, of counties and in a lot of cities throughout the nation, obviously here in Georgia. Um, how would you assess how you all have been able? Because at one point, y'all had some high numbers. But how would you assess how you all have been able to respond to mitigate the spread of the virus and with your vaccination rates? Yes. I mean, you know, we are riding the same wave as so many um, communities in our state and nationally. We've seen a general decrease in numbers and we've been very fortunate to have that in Cobb. We have about 60% of our residents have been um, fully vaccinated. We still have a lot more, which we would have liked to um, be vaccinated, but we're hoping that with all the measures that we've put in place with all the testing and you know distributing, take home um, kits that we've we've done enough, at least for now, to keep this at bay. As you know, like every other city and region, uh, buying a home uh, is a challenge. Finding a uh, renting that is affordable is a challenge. Recently, Atlanta was deemed unaffordable. Buying a home in Atlanta has become unaffordable. That's according to the Federal Reserve. I mean, that is just, for a lot of people, they were surprised. Uh, Corey, and this is, I want to be clear, this is the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Uh, did that surprise you, that this that Atlanta is officially considered affordable? Well, we know Atlanta's been a desirable place for a long period of time. But we've also seen since this pandemic just a rise in price and value of everything i'm talking about i just went to the grocery store and i just can't believe how much i'm spending did you get but some eggs because eggs are high <laughs> omg aren't they but um you know with housing again i talked about my husband and i just moving we certainly saw home values moving up and we thought this would just be for a phase because of the pandemic but what we've realized is that we've had the conflation of the pandemic but um with that, we've had less inventory of houses that have been moving in Atlanta. So we have this great demand. We've always been a great place to live. People are moving here, but we just don't have a lot of inventory to move for the people that want to move into new homes or move to Atlanta. Is that the case for Cobb County then as well? Yes. I say Atlanta generally to speak of Metro mm -hmm. Atlanta, but yes, definitely in Cobb. You know, Cobb is a hot place to live. And we've had the same woes that I think have been experienced in Metro Atlanta with respect to housing. What can you all, as a commission, as a county, what can you all do to offer some type of alternative to those that that demand that has a, a high end price tag on it? And if you want to just call it expanding affordable housing, what can you all do? Yeah. 
So, you know, there is an array of housing. And when we talk about affordable housing, we could be speaking about those who live in multifamily housing, and we could speak towards those that live in single family housing. And, you know, we're very fortunate to have the lift from the federal government with emergency rental assistance funds that we've been able to use to help keep people in their homes during the pandemic. But as I shared, you know, we've had these challenges leading up to the pandemic. And so even when we look at how we move past this, there's a lot more that we need to be able to do in Cobb. And so we've been working with our staff to at least understand where we are, where's our data, or what is our data telling us? And we have actually put forward a grant with the ARC to be able to have a more formal assessment of that. But in between then and now, what are some things we can do beyond the ERA grant? We have a housing authority that has been um, putting forward a program where they can actually help staff as well as our residents with down payment assistance, which helps because now um, with all of the um, tightening of um, policies when it comes to buying a home, people are now expected to put down that 20% down payment, which keeps a lot of people who are paying the same amount in their mortgage from getting a home because you have to save up to do that. Meanwhile, and so a, and mm-hmm. I mean, but meanwhile, as you know, too, for folks that are having a hard time in terms of trying to buy, I mean, even renting, yeah. you know, yeah. um, is there any assistance that y'all can offer there? I mean, look, well, and you know this, you can't, you cannot yeah. make developers include, well, some say they can, if they're going to use well, <laughs> some, that they want these, these tax incentives in terms of how much they can provide in terms of affordable housing. And, and everyone yes. I talk to, and you know this, Chairwoman, yes. 15% is just not enough. I, I know, but it's a start, right? And that's well, the challenge. Well, yeah, if some look, folks are tired of start, though. I hear you. I mean, if you look at the increase of housing values and rents, rental rates versus the increase of wages, there is a significant mismatch. I can't deny that. And I wish I could tell you that I had a panacea or even a plan to address that gap. But I know we've had a gap for a long time, at least within our county, and even addressing the issue and even understanding that as an affluent county, that we still have many Um, industries that are service oriented, where we need to be able to house people that aren't making wages to, to live in those 300, $400,000 plus homes. And so I've seen some commissioners do some creative things, but we don't have that policy even for that 15% set aside. But as they have zoning, I know we've had a commissioner require a developer to have some units that were set aside for affordability. And so I think they're, they are looking for creative ways until we are better able to address policy. Immediately following this segment, I'm going to have a conversation with a DeKalb County Commissioner about a program where they're trying to help families who have been living in those extended stay motels uh, get into find what they call stable rental housing. This is a reality that I think a lot of folks don't understand. Yes, and it's You're not that, and it's not that people are don't have jobs. Or you, trying to find a place to live in this region is really hard, Commissioner, for folks. It is extremely hard, you know, and I'm glad that you talked about it as a region um, at the beginning. And even just now, we've got to look at ways to do that. And I'm grateful that we have the Atlanta Regional Commission is heading up a task force that's being led by our chairwoman in Gwinnett County. And we are looking at not just talking about it, but what what policies can we put in place that can actually help move those numbers so we can start housing people who need a more affordable place to live. Finally, as we wrap up, how are y'all getting along out there at the Cobb County Commission? We are doing the best that we can, Ms. Rose, you know. Um, that's that's a good answer. I hear that a lot from commissions. <laughs> we are doing, the, you know, it's um, we're about a year and a half in, at least with us being an all-female board. Two commissioners are new. Three of us have been veteran commissioners. And we are dealing with some issues that I've never seen before. As like what? A pandemic, these housing, a pandemic still working through that the the housing issues that we have and just seeing that being exacerbated you know transportation also being a big issue and all the dollars that we have coming in from the federal government to address matters and so we have we have our fair share of challenges but we have our fair share of opportunities Uh, but before you before you let me go i did want to clarify some information where we did talk about cityhood Mm -hmm. and we spoke about that um, fiscal impact the 41 million dollars is 
revenue that the county would potentially lose, not necessarily income that the cities would gain. And sure. so in case anybody who is interested in cityhood is looking at that and thinking, wow, the cities are going to get that, that impact to the county doesn't necessarily equate into dollars uh, that would go to the city. Well, I'm glad you cleared that up. That's very important. Thank you so much. Yeah. Cobb County Chairwoman Lisa Cupid, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Enjoy your thank weekend. You. Thank you. You do the same. Take care. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As you just heard in the conversation I had with Cobb County Chairwoman Lisa Cupert, here we go again. Housing, it is an issue in the region. I'm joined now in the studio by DeKalb County Commissioner Robert Patrick because we're going to talk about an effort which is looking to help households who have been living in extended stay motels find stable rental housing. Commissioner Patrick, thanks so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, first of all, for inviting me here today. I really appreciate that. And uh, housing is a it's a it's an important topic these days. Darren, I asked to get your take on just Atlanta. And I guess it, it may be fair to say Atlanta and some of the regions that we know the Fed said Atlanta is unaffordable. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a resident that I've been speaking with since getting into office last year. And uh, she says that a two-bedroom apartment in the Dunwoody area is eighteen hundred bucks for her and her child. And for some people listening, they say, "Wow, two bedrooms! Wow." Two yeah. bedrooms, wow! But you know, you also have you know living expenses; oh, those yeah. are going up. Uh, cost of fuel, cost of food. Uh, you've got kids in school. Like those those expenses, those responsibilities don't get slackened off just because there's a, another issue out there that's that's sort of uh, consuming all all the resources that you have. So, 1996, it, I moved to Atlanta. Later that year, I was living in a apartment in, in a Tempo property. Remember the Tempo properties uh, for Beaver Highway? My rent was five hundred and forty five dollars, and I thought, "Woo, this oh, is wow. this is high." My dad was like, "Calm down." <laughs> Well, you know, know, again, back in in the Dunwoody area, I remember a one bedroom apartment back probably early 2000s was six fifty a month. Wow! And I thought, man, what am I getting for six fifty? I remember living off Northridge, thinking, wow, this is high, this high end for me. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to get your thoughts because do you think do you all have any idea in terms of how many households are currently living at these extended stay motels? Any data out there? So I'll say that. as you may recall, as we were talking, uh, I used to work for uh, the city of Norcross and was also an employee, pardon me, a councilman with the city of Doraville at the same time. And uh, Norcross actually had the, the foresight to do a study on affordable housing associated with people living in extended stay uh, mm-hmm. housing units. And uh, so the data we have is from about the 2019 time frame, and it's really more applicable to Gwinnett County. Okay. Uh, my vision, my view was, was, you know, a needs a need sort of irregardless of what the what the political line is and so I thought let's take what we know is a, an issue from from there and see if this project uh, might be able to help out some residents here in DeKalb County. How does it work here? How, first of all how are you all like identifying the families the households or people yeah. referring them? Yeah good question. So uh, we've actually partnered with St. Vincent de Paul and uh, they are uh, administering the program. Uh, they are sort of specifically looking for residents that have small children uh, that need a place to, to, to live. And really the idea is, is if you're in a cramped up small spot, it's one thing for an adult, but if you've got kids or a child, really it, the best thing for them is to be able to get out and run around. And so this is the attempt to help that very sort of specific section of the economy or of our of And our to keep residents. them in the county. Keep it, them in the county. Because of the schools and things of that nature. Exactly. Once you've uh, sort of started going to a school, your family's comfortable with the teachers and the environment, you really don't want to create more changes and have out like that. Often there are some other circumstances. It could be that the, the parents may be in need of employment. It could be a, a lot of optics around here. So mm-hmm. How you're all determining, okay, you can help them get into a place, but then stability. they got to be able to, to be able to stay there. How are you all helping them? So that's going to be one of the issues that, that uh, St. Vincent de Paul is able to help out with on that. Um, to that point, you know, even the, the help that we're going to be offering, uh, a modest $75,000 uh, through ARP funding, um, it will not address the full need no. that's out there, frankly. With, with 75000 how many do you, you can help, Commissioner? Uh, if... 
if it if we assume that it's a thousand dollars to get out of the um, extended stay hotel, gets you your first and last month's rent or security deposit, then we can help seventy five families. That's a start. Again, I, I heard from your last interview yet again another start. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we are getting supply chained, uh, as we hear so many other times. Part of that is the pandemic, but you know, uh, I also think we, if we look at sort of the larger trade policies that we had over the last few years that were sort of uh, the notion that trade was a was a bad thing, um, that ends up adding cost to every component. Well, but let me ask you this. Is there, you all are partnering with the St. Vincent de Paul Society. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that the county, is there any funding from the COVID relief and CARES Act and all that? I mean, look. Counties were getting millions and millions of dollars. I mean, this yep. is there anything y'all can pull from that? Yep. So uh, when it comes to people that have been in existing housing and they've fallen behind uh, and they're getting to get ready to go through the eviction process, there's the TLAC program. Uh, the county, I believe, is uh, has already had its uh, second tranche of $25 million. There's the possibility of additional funding coming down to help out with that. Um, but again, that's one component. <laughs> I used and, and, and as we've said, the, the problem really is widespread. And you're up against you're up against not only the demand uh, for housing, but there's so many other optics uh, to this too. A listener just emailed me and says, "What about the effect of speculative investors on housing prices and supply? It seems that working people can't compete with the muscle of an investment bank. That is so true. That, that's true. That is very true. Um, you know, I know other communities. Uh, around the world have talked about uh, restricting those type of investors. Um, honestly, I'd need to do a little more research. I think mm-hmm. we need a little more research uh, to see how that would work here in the metro area. Um, but another option is, again, is is finding that available land mm-hmm. uh, and looking for alternative materials to work with that may be uh, more efficient, faster, uh, to be able to put the housing together. Uh, the idea of perhaps looking at, you know, abandoned shopping plazas or older shopping plazas. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there are churches that are, um, there's not as many parishioners attending as there used to be back in the day, you know, perhaps that's an opportunity where we can partner with them and say, look, you're already off the tax records. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you thought about working with a, an organization that can put housing in these areas? Well, in the city of Atlanta, I mean, we have nonprofit uh, builders, as they call themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we know about Quest Homes, I believe, is one here in the Atlanta area. And there's the Atlanta, Atlanta Land Trust. Uh, East yep. Lake Foundation does a lot. Yep. Can you all look at those models and maybe try to find a partner, too, to help you all with, with these families? Uh, since this is government, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, plagiarizing and other jurisdictions' good ideas. So, um, absolutely. Like, if it's a good idea, if it's an idea that seems functional, we're interested in considering it. But, Commissioner, if we don't, as a, as a region, get a hold on this, you know, we and I'm talking about Atlanta and, the, and all the surrounding areas, we always talk about how diverse our region is and just yep. how we we welcoming everybody. We're welcoming Atlanta. Yep. But who are we welcoming and also who has to move outside of this area because of housing issues? If we, if y'all and other, you know, yep. stakeholders don't get a hold on this, yep. what is a likely outcome? Well, I'll tell you what. When I was a councilman with the city of Doraville, I had the opportunity to go on a ARC link trip. And we actually went out to San Diego and um, took a tour of what's happening out in San Diego. And I think you know, the San Diego model would be the worst case scenario, which is you have this prevalence of homelessness, uh, people sleeping in the bushes, people laying on the side of the interstates or in the parks. Well, we see that, that now. Not to the degree that they had it uh, over in San Diego. Yeah. And that is... Um, and I know outside of Sacramento, too, there was a, almost like a, a valley correct. of folks. Correct. And so we have we have time to act, but we can't dally. We really have to look into alternatives or ways to address the issue. Um, land is going to be a bigger and bigger pressing issue. Uh, DeKalb County, I think, uh, traditionally prided itself as a suburban community mm-hmm. um, with a billion five budget. You're, you're really not suburban anymore. You're really, you're moving in big time. Uh, and that may mean greater urbanization. Um, but that's not a that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. That that actually, uh, you know, if you can help drive down housing costs, uh, get schools closer to uh, where people live, uh, to the grocery stores, build those conveniences for your residents, 
then all of a sudden you have the opportunity for more jobs moving in, that desirability to be sure. in the place it that's all, happening. It, it all intersects. Meanwhile, when you look at these families who need assistance now, like the families, the households that you mm-hmm. all are going to help, and you, you said you're optimistic, hopefully 75, uh, finding, I guess, landlords or, or places that will work with you all, mm-hmm. is that a challenge? I suspect it will be a challenge. Again, St. Vincent de Paul has a uh, um, good record of working with communities, working with property owners. So I suspect that whatever difficulties there are, they may have already uh, found solutions on how to negotiate those those hazards. Do you have your 75 households, family selected, or folks? some folks listening to this program may want more information? Where do they go? Uh, they would go to St. Vincent de Paul's website. And, of course, you can always email my office, uh, district1 at decabcountyga.gov. And uh, we can most definitely put you in touch with the right people. How important is this to you that this works? It's critical. Um, again, to hear. So growing up, um, we I was a, I, my mom was a single parent at mm-hmm. times. And so um, I know the challenges of your parents uh, traveling uh, around the country or simply staying having to work a late shift mm-hmm. to put food on the table and keep a house over your kid's head. So, um, you know, it's a priority and I'm, I'm grateful for the station I'm in right now in life. Uh, there's been a lot of opportunities that have been made available to me and, uh, sort of feel like this is an opportunity to, to give back. And, so you and, and sometimes it's just a simple hand up mm-hmm. <laughs> a couple hundred bucks or a thousand bucks to help someone get into a home where their child has better options that, that's that's precious. You can't well, beat that. And we've seen that with the guaranteed income programs that seem to work. Well, that's another conversation. Well, Absolutely. Come on back. Absolutely. DeKalb right. County District Commissioner from District 1, Robert Patrick, thank you so much for taking time. Good to see you. It's been some years. It's been some. I, I haven't gained that much weight. The, my COVID 15 or 20. I, hope I, I did off. not say that. I was just. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, folks say, Rose said the commissioner had put on some pounds. No, that's not what I was saying. <laughs> Thank you again, Rose. I appreciate you taking time. Thank you for what you're all going to do to try to help so many people. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker, who rides a bike. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's all online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look, City Lights, all of our podcasts, wherever you like. By the way, check out our new website. It's still kind of new, wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.